He paid it all upon the cross, no longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin, washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all. We stated in our introduction, it's very good to see everyone that's with us this morning. We're very thankful for your presence. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew, the 21st chapter. I'm going to read a rather long portion of Scripture this morning by way of introduction. We'll be studying almost exclusively from the Gospel of Matthew. So open up your Bible and leave it open to this passage as we will be studying extensively herein. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruits. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits of in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Chapter 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent his armies to destroy those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highway and gathered together all whom they found, 
both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Pardon the mistakes in the reading. This will be the text from which we draw our studies this morning. But before we do so, we have a great privilege to go to God in word of prayer. Let's pray together at this time. Before we delve into a discussion of these parables that we have at hand in Matthew chapter 21 22, I want to say a word about Matthew's writing in general. One of the key features to Matthew's writing is that he does not write in a chronological style for the most part. As you go through and you read through his material, and then you go over to Mark or you go over to Luke, you see a lot of Matthew's writings are out of place, it would seem. And that's because his style was not styled according to chronology. He is a topical writer. Sometimes he's chrono chrono chronological, if I can say it. But most of the time he is merely topical. And one of the key features of his writings, one of his stylistic features, is that he groups things together in groups of three, in triplets or what we call trilogies. All throughout his writings, this is a key feature. And this is important because the number three symbolizes completeness. And when you see a triplet, you're seeing a complete story, the complete picture that he wants you to see. But it's also a way to group and to show the unity of thought that's being expressed within a grouping of teachings. Whenever you understand the uh, triplet type of teaching of Matthew, a lot of things begun, begin to come to life. You begin to see passages of Scripture that the Spirit linked together that sometimes we don't typically link together. And we see a larger picture, a broader picture that was intended by Scripture. If we fail to understand some of Matthew's style, we fail to grasp some, some of the meaning that he is intended for us to gain. And such is the case indeed with trilogies. I'll point out just a few to, to note his style in writing. In Matthew chapter 1, you begin in the first chapter, what do you have? You have the genealogies. How are the genealogies broken up? They're broken up into three parts, three groupings of 14. There's a reason why he does that. That's not the purpose of our sermon this morning, but that's one of the triplets that he introduces in the very beginning of his writings. The genealogies are followed by three narratives. And that's another key feature of Matthew's writing. He goes from doctrinal teaching to narrative teaching, and he, he oscillates between the two in groupings many times. You have, first of all, in the end of chapter 1, you have the birth story of Jesus Christ, how he was conceived and how he was born. You go from that into chapter 2, you have the second in the trilogy. You have the arrival of Jesus into the world, into the nation of Israel, and his rejection. And then that is followed up by his fleeing into Egypt and then arriving in Nazareth. Chapter 3 begins another trilogy. You have the introduction of John the Baptist followed by his confrontation with the Jewish leaders, followed with his introduction of the Messiah, the one whose way he came to prepare. That trilogy is followed by another trilogy. In chapter 4, you have the three temptations of Jesus. That's the first. It's a kind of a subset of another trilogy. You have uh, the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of his Galilean ministry, and also the calling of his disciples. This is the introduction of the Messiah in his reign. That's a key feature uh, that illustrates right there some of Matthew's writing. You have not only triplets, but you have triplets within triplets. You get over to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We have it divided into three chapters because there are three natural breaks in that one great sermon. 
But within those three breaks, you see many other groupings of three. This is a major point in Matthew's running. He uses triplets throughout. In Matthew chapter 9, you have a triplet of miracles. You have in the first one the restoring of a, a girl to life who had been dead, and then a lady who had a flow of blood that was healed. That's all presented in one narrative form. That's followed by a second one, which is uh, two blind men are healed, followed by a third miracle, that is a mute man speaks. He groups those miracles together for a purpose. When you go back and you read those, read them together and think of the overall message that's being expressed. You have a parable of trilogies in Matthew chapter 13. Different from the one we're talking about today, but yet another trilogy. You have this, the parables of the sowers. You have the parable of the sower goes forth in the field and he, he sows his seed, some on uh, stony ground, some on thorny ground, some on good ground. That parable is followed up by the story of the wheat and the tares. The seed is uh, sown in the kingdom and with it rises up tares and wheat alike that will be judged on the final day of judgment. That's followed by the third parable about sowing, the parable of the mustard seed. All three of those parables are speaking about the same general subject, but different sides of the same picture, if you will. In Matthew chapter 18, you have a trilogy of teachings about children entering into the kingdom. Three expressions of Christ about these little children. Matthew chapter 21 here. You have a trilogy of teachings about judgment. Matthew chapter 25. You have a trilogy of teachings about final judgment of Christians in particular. And what I'm pointing out with all this is there are a lot of triplets in Matthew's writing. And whenever you see triplets, consider them together because they, each part of the trilogy has an independent message. But they form a combined message that's greater than any single one. And what we do many times, we're guilty of, I believe. For instance, we go to Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, and we focus on the seed that's planted on the stony, the thorny, or the good ground. But we miss the wheat and the tares, and we miss the mustard seed and how all three relate together and the big picture that Jesus is giving. I think that's partly the case with what we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 21. Before we dig into this these three parables as well, I want to set the context of what Jesus is saying here. That's always important to understand what's being said by looking at the context both immediate and the overall general context of the gospel of Matthew. I want to back up and look at the big picture at Matthew and we're going to see how this big picture lends toward understanding these parables in particular. Matthew has four major points, maybe more than these, but four I want to point out this morning as he's writing in his gospel in general. Number one, he's wanting to point out that the Jews have rejected their Messiah. God had a Savior. It was his son. He sent this son into the world to save them from their sins, yet they don't want that Savior. And all throughout his gospel, in every chapter, he's pointing out the Jews have rejected their Savior. There's not going to be another one. This was God's Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, and they have rejected him. Number two, he wants to point out that Israel has failed in their mission. Israel was not chosen for salvation. They were chosen for service, and they failed in performing the service that God granted to them. Great honor given to Israel, yet they failed to keep it. Number three. It wants to point out the universal nature of the kingdom and the law of Christ. There is a new kingdom coming. In fact, Matthew refers to it often as the kingdom of heaven. He's contrasting this idea of a spiritual kingdom as opposed to a physical kingdom. Physical Israel is going to be replaced by a spiritual kingdom. And as Christ is on earth, he's going to be the king in that new kingdom. He's delivering his new law. 
so that when the kingdom comes into effect, they have a law that governs them. And it's not going to be just for Jews. No, Jews had their opportunity. They performed their servants and they failed in it. And now the kingdom is being given to a different people. We're going to talk more about that. That's a major component of our parables today. And number four, he wants to stress the authority of God. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. John the Baptist was later the great prophets preparing the way of the Messiah. Jesus comes, he fills the, the role of prophet, priest, and king. He's bringing great messages to the people that they should be prepared for, yet they have rejected the message and the authority behind the message. You cannot reject the words of a prophet without rejecting the one who sent the prophet. That's a major key. To Matthew's writing. So keep those four thoughts in mind as we look at the general context of Matthew. Turn over to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the first depiction of the nation of Israel in the Gospels. And this is not a very flattering picture. What's happened is there are some Gentiles, these magi that come to see the king, these shepherds. They're Gentiles. They're from a faraway distant land. And these Gentiles are excited about the arrival of the Messiah. They saw his star in the east and they followed it because they want to come worship the new Messiah who was born to be king of the Jews. In contrast to the Jewish, to the Gentile belief, the Jewish belief is awful. The Jewish picture is awful. You have Herod the king who wants to immediately kill this man. The Bible says that the city of Jerusalem trembled with Herod. The nation is afraid. Keep that picture in mind because we're going to come back to it later. The, the rulers of Israel, the leaders, instead of trying to protect their king, instead of being excited about the arrival of the Messiah, what are they doing? They're becoming accomplices to Herod. Later in the chapter, Herod kills all the children in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is what we would call a small one-horse town. Might have amounted to about eight or ten children that were killed. But he kills all of them, two years old and younger, for the hope of killing the Messiah. And the leaders of Israel are complicit in that. They aided and abetted him in doing that. And that is the first picture of the Jewish nation. This is how they are welcoming their king. And that picture, that negative aspect of Israel, is going to be carried throughout Matthew's gospel. That's why he paints it as the first depiction of Israel. Look over at Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist has arrived. He's presenting his message. Verse 8. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance... And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse, eight, uh, verse 7, brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath of God, from the judgment to come. What's his message here? He's saying, number one, Israel. You Jewish leaders, you Pharisees and Sadducees who have come out to witness this baptism, repent. In other words, you're not good enough. You have to change your life. You're going to have to kick sin out of your life if you want to become members of the new kingdom. In other words, repentance and obedience are necessary if you want to enter the kingdom. Those have always been qualifications for entering the Lord's kingdom. They were not worthy. And they are going to have to change. They must change. 
This teaching of um, John, John the Baptist here echoes the words of Isaiah chapter 51 verses 1 and 2, which depicts Israel as being hewn out of a rock, that rock being Abraham. And what John is saying is just as Israel was hewn out of Abraham the rock, so God can hew a different Israel out of the same rock. And just because you have blood relations to Abraham does not mean you're going to be saved. God can raise up a different people. And what he is proposing here is a possibility of a new Israel being born. What he's going to do later is show it's not just a possibility, it's going to become a probability and actuality. God can, from the rock, raise up a different nation. Therefore, repent. Do not rely on your ancestral heritage. God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. It's not the question if he is, going to, he is going to fulfill that promise. But how is he going to do it? Will he raise up a new nation? As the Matthean narrative continues, this point goes, as we said, from a possibility to a probability to an actuality. The destruction he points out is coming. Verse 10 there. If Israel refuses to bear fruits of repentance, she will be cut down. The axe is there at the base of the tree. In other words, it's as if God himself or Christ was going through and he's a woodsman. And he is sitting there and he has his axe at the bottom of the tree. And he is waiting for the call, for the message, and he is going to start hacking down this tree. It is harvest time and the trees have not borne fruit. This is both a warning and a promise. If they will not repent, you can rest assured, God will cut down the tree. Now go over to Matthew chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now what's this talking about? He is talking with a Gentile centurion who has come to Jesus and he has asked him to heal his servant. Jesus says, okay, I'll go with you. And the centurion says, no, no, no. I'm a commander of great authority. I tell a man to go and he goes. I understand the authority that you have. All you have to do is say a word, my servant will be healed. Jesus replies to that in astonishment. He says, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. There's that contrast again, the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles are lauded, some of them, for their great faith. Greater faith amongst them than amongst the Jews. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying there? He's repeating John's words. John said it could be God could raise up different seed from Abraham from these stones. Jesus is saying it's going to happen. People from the east and from the west, from far off, the Gentiles from all over the world, they are going to be gathered in the kingdom. It is going to happen. Verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Israel, physical Israel, is going to be displaced. <coughs> Jewish heritage is no longer going to be the requirement for the children of God. All nations will be included in this, the kingdom, and those that were children of God will be destroyed. He's making a prediction and a promise about the coming <coughs> judgment. I want to point out two more passages before we go into these parables. This passage of Matthew 3 and Matthew chapter 8 are very important because they parallel directly to these parables we're going to look at. But I want to 
point out two more passages to kind of set the scene for us, if you will. Look over at Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus is giving the law for his new kingdom. What's he say there? In verse 21, we read this often. We quote, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but whoever doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He's establishing that part of his kingdom law, the rules are, you're going to have to obey God. Now, why is Israel being rejected? Because of disobedience. And here's the point. The rules are still the same. Whether you're talking old kingdom or new kingdom, obedience is necessary. God's not going to hold Israel to one standard and then new Israel to a different standard. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And he goes into this story about building your house upon the rock or building it upon the sand. And what he's pointing out to them is choose your foundation. Are you going to build on Christ the rock or are you going to build it upon your fathers and their traditions that will pass away? That's the question. Choose whom you are going to serve. And verse 28 now. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. They are shocked by how Jesus taught, by what Jesus taught. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. This presents a problem here. Jesus is separating himself from the scribes and Pharisees, the people, the teachers of his day. He's wanting that to be noted and the people are recognizing the difference. He has authority. He's not interpreting the law. He is speaking with authority as a coming king of his new kingdom. People recognize that. And because he speaks differently, because he speaks with authority, there are going to be many conflicts and confrontations with the Jewish leaders because they feel like he's usurping their authority. He's not usurping their authority. He's establishing his own. And he's showing them that they have no authority. They never did. They were to follow God's authority, and they had rejected that. He's establishing this at this point, and the people recognize it. One more passage, Matthew chapter 11. We've read this passage, uh, I think the last two Sundays in a row, maybe the last three, I'm not sure. So we're not going to read it in fullness. I encourage you to go back, begin in verse 16 and read down through verse 24. What he's doing there is he's rebuking that some, some of the cities in, in Israel because if the mighty works that had been done in them had been done in Gentile cities, those Gentile cities would have repented a long time ago. And that contrast is brought forth again clearly. The Gentiles have not had near as much opportunity. And there is a, a sight that they are hopeful, they are obedient to the gospel, yet you are rejecting it in all of your blessings. And he establishes that contrast. That contrast of the failure of Jews and the taking of the kingdom away from them is vital to understanding Matthew's writing. In fact, in almost every chapter of Matthew, if not in every chapter, Gentiles are referred to. And he's making this point. Look, folks, this kingdom is going away from you. Matthew's gospel was written to Gentiles, and he's trying to get these people to understand the message after Christ is resurrected. You're having a second opportunity right now. Christ came teaching this. John the Baptist came teaching this. The prophets of old taught that this day was coming. It's arrived now. Jesus proved himself. He proved his authority. Now change, folks. Change. And accept that the kingdom has been taken from physical Israel and is being given to the nations, to anybody who will come and obey the word of the Lord. This brings us to Matthew chapter 21. Let's talk about the immediate context of what's going on. In Matthew chapter 21, it begins with the triumphant entry of Jesus. 
This is on Sunday of the final week of that Passion Week, as we call it. On Sunday, Jesus marches into Jerusalem. He has this great procession that's coming with him. He pauses on the Mount of Olives as he overlooks the city. And he weeps because Israel is unrepentant. And he realizes this is not a day of victory. This is a day of sadness because the end of Israel is near. It's at hand. He marches in. The people that had gathered for the Passover there marching in with him in triumphant entry. Yet the city, it says... Is worried. Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, 11. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of, of Galilee. They were moved. That word is better rendered tremble. The nation, the city of Israel, the leaders, everybody, they're trembling. What's that remind you of? Reminds you of that introduction story, Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus arrives, he's born. The nation is trembling along with the leaders as Herod tries to kill Christ. Here we've come about 33 years later in time and the nation is trembling again with the rulers and the rulers are now going to accomplish what Herod could not for the time was not yet. Going on on Monday, the very next day, Matthew chapter 21 verse 12, then Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. What Jesus is doing is he's challenging the authority of these Jewish leaders openly. He goes into their temple, into their courtyards where they're selling their cattle and he overturns their money tables. He drives them out with a whip and they're left speechless and the people are rejoicing with Christ. He's gathering a large following behind him. That's not going to sit well. That's why on the next day, Tuesday, they come to him and they pose the great question. By what authority do you do these things that you do? Now, this is not the first time this subject of authority has come up. Jesus has brought this subject up on himself on many occasions. He cast out demons specifically to bring up this point. By what authority? They said, well, we can't deny Jesus to cast out demons, so uh, we're going to change his authority source. We're going to say he did it by the power of the devil. And Jesus rebukes them and says, how can a house divided against itself stand? Why would I overthrow my own mission? It's impossible. I have greater authority than Satan. And to attribute my works and my authority to Satan is a great blasphemy. In fact, it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit like that, it will never be forgiven of you in this life or the hereafter. He gives that great warning to establish his authority. They've heard about his authority. They've seen his works that prove his authority. And yet, ignorantly or sheepishly or deceitfully, they come up to him and they pose the great question again, by what authority do you do these things that you do? Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question if you'll answer my question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Jesus goes back to John. Matthew chapter 3, that parallel account we're talking about. What's John saying? John's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready or the axe is going to chop your tree down. That message of authority resonates in Jesus' citation of it. The people, they get in a crowd together, and it's awesome in Scripture. You get to see what people are thinking because Jesus was listening to their thoughts, and he explains them to us. They didn't think Jesus could hear, but he could hear. And they reason amongst themselves, and they say, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to ask, why didn't you obey him? But if we say it's from men, uh, we're going to fear the people because everybody held John to be a prophet. In other words, John's authority was indisputable. Everybody recognized it. 
And so we can't therefore tonight or else we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot and lose the, the little bit of the crowd that we still have left. And so they, they say, we cannot answer you at this time. It's not that they could not answer. It's that they would not answer. They refused to answer. They were being very stubborn in their discussion about authority. Here's one of the things Jesus is pointing out that I don't want you to miss. He's saying that his mission was similar to that of John's. They fulfilled the same role, yet Jesus was greater than John. Don't miss that. Jesus is greater than John. Yet they did show a similar role. Now, in regards to this, they've asked him about his authority. He's establishing his authority. Now, based on their recognition of John the Baptist and their refusal to answer his question, he's going to utter three parables to them. The first parable is the indictment of Israel. The second parable is the sentencing of Israel. And the third parable is the illustration of the execution of God's wrath on Israel. This is a trial that has been. They open the trial by putting Christ on trial and asking about his authority. But Jesus has now turned the tables and they are on trial for their disobedience. And I want you to underline that in your mind. What is under consideration here is obedience. Not mental recognition, but obedience. Will they obey the Savior? We come now to the parable, Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? You should think about several key features that begin in this parable and are taken over into the other three parables. In fact, I want to back up just a moment. And what you have in these three parables is called progressive parallelism. That may sound like a big term, but what it means is the first one starts off kind of small. The second one grows the same top a little bit bigger, and then the third one is yet bigger still. They cover some of the same material. They're talking about some of the same subjects, but they're progressing in content, progressing in the number of points that Jesus is bringing across here. In the first parable, you have sons being spoken of. Sons are going to be spoken of in all the parables, yet the sons in this parable are a little bit different. This is speaking of the nation of Israel in particular. He has a vineyard that he wants to go, that he wants them to go and work in. A vineyard is going to be discussed in the next parable. Here's a key point that I want to make to you. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, every time the word vineyard is used metaphorically, it always refers to the nation of Israel. And such is the case in this parable. He had some sons. He sent them to the work in the vineyard. The vineyard is owned by the father. That means God owns Israel, in other words. And what is under consideration is, will, will these leaders be obedient to the father, the owner of the vineyard? That's the question. Will they? Two sons. The first son is asked to go and work, and he says, no, I will not go, but later repents. It means he had a change of heart that resulted in a change of action, and he went out and worked. The second son said, I go, but he also repented, and he did not go, and he did not work. He was disobedient. Jesus posed the question, which one of these did the will of the Father? And if you underline your Bible, you ought to underline that phrase, did the will of the Father. Obedience is what's under consideration here. He's posing this to the people. Notice what they said. They said the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Jesus' words here remind me of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Pastor, a lot of people go, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you use or the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He's asked these people, what's the judgment on these two sons? Oh, that first one, he was wrong. He needs to be punished for that. What do you say? With the same measure you're using, this applies to you. You're unworthy because you've been disobedient. It shows the righteousness of God's judgment. The people could understand the justice of the, the sentence, for they themselves passed it. It also reminds me of the story of the prophet Nathan going before David. Nathan presented this parable of the man with the one little ewe lamb who he loved, and the, the wicked, greedy landmaster comes and he steals that lamb, and he kills it, and he says, what should we do to the man? And David says, oh, you are killing him. He's deserving of death. And Nathan points at him and says, you're the man. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He gives them a hypothetical situation. What should we do to the man? Oh, that, that second one, he was worthless. He was disobedient. He deserves to be punished. Jesus says, okay, you're the man. The judgment is fair. It is just. Notice also, he compares John to speaking on the behalf of the Father. In the parable, the Father is the one directly speaking. But what Jesus is saying is, when God spoke, he did it through John. John was speaking by the authority of the Father, and you refused to listen to him. When you reject the Word of God, either written by a prophet or spoken by a prophet, you have rejected God himself. For Scripture is God-breathed. The third key feature of this parable is that Matthew breaks from his traditional phraseology. All throughout his gospel, we recognize him speaking of the kingdom of heaven. But in this parable, he speaks of the kingdom of God. Now, why the change? Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven to contrast the spiritual nature versus the physical nature. But here, in this parable, he's wanting to contrast the reign and the authority of God. And he's saying the kingdom of God, in other words, God's the one that has authority and God's the one that's reigning. And you have rejected his kingdom, his reign, his lordship. Those who are the leaders are looked upon in this parable with disdain. While those that they hate, those that they loathe, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the harlots, those are the ones that are getting to enter into the kingdom. It would appear, it, the, the phraseology in English seems like they get to go in first and then later the scribes and the Pharisees go in. Actually, it's not so much that way in Greek. It's saying they get to go in and the others do not. The tax collectors and the harlots. Why? Because though they had lived wicked lives, they had a heart that could be softened. They could recognize authority and they could choose to submit to it. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders and the leaders, they refused. And because of their choice, they would be lost. Entrance into the kingdom is not based upon merit. How good you are versus how bad somebody else is. It's based upon faithful obedience to the word of God. When Jesus says that the tax collectors and the sinners believed, what's he saying? He's saying they obeyed. Obedience is what's under consideration. And if you mark in your Bible, you ought to under, underline believed and go back up to did the will of the Father and underline it and draw an arrow between the two. Belief and obedience in Scripture are interchangeable. 
You cannot have faith, an act of faith, without putting it into action and through obedience. You cannot obey God without having faith in Him. They're interchangeable and they're noted in this passage. At the first, the leader saw John was a prophet of God. I want you to notice what this is pointing out. At the beginning, they saw him, but they would not obey him. You know what they're saying? They had mental assent. They recognized, yes, this man has authority. But what happened? They became hardened, and they refused to obey. And their lack of obedience is what condemned them. This is the indictment scene. The Jewish leaders are indicted by their own words and the obedience of the people. John is vindicated, and so is Jesus in this moment. The Jewish leaders are excluded from the kingdom of God because they will not submit to the authority of God. Tax collectors and prostitutes are admitted, not because they were better-rate citizens, but because they were obedient citizens to the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is changing hands from the Jewish elite to anyone who will obey the gospel of Christ. The self-professed are cast out of the kingdom as Jesus had said they would in Matthew chapter 8. Salvation requires obedience, not a mere profession of faith. This brings us to the second parable, which is the sentencing of Israel. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Here another parable. This phrase here, another parable, links it to the first one. There are also phrases in the Greek that are identical to the ones used in the phrase. These are some of the links that tie the parables together. It's more than just uh, fancy arrangement. It was intended by, by inspiration. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive the, its fruits. And the vine dressers took his servants beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with the vine dressers? Just as in the first parable, Jesus ends the second one with a question. What's going to happen to these people? We'll talk about that in just a moment. Note some of the keys to this parable. Again, a vineyard is under consideration. This vineyard is referring to the nation of Israel. The vineyard is said to be built by God. They are not a self-made nation. God built them. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. He chose the descendants of a certain lineage of the 12 tribes. He brought them out of Egyptian bondage. He established them. He built them. He gave them a kingdom, a rule. He took them away into Babylonian captivity, into Roman captivity. And he's, he's reestablished them now. The vineyard belongs to God. Israel's missed that key fact all along the way. Don't miss it yourself. The kingdom belonged to God. He planted the vineyard. He set a hedge of protection around it. He dug a wine press and he built a tower. Not Israel. This is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 2. I'd invite you to go back and read that passage. It's phrased the, the disappointing vineyard of God. It's talking about Israel. The one who made the nation of Israel was God. The one who protected Israel was God. And when he removed that hand of protection, they were not protected, by the way. God is the one who provided a place where the fruits of righteousness could be enjoyed. The vine 
the vineyard vat. And also he built a tower that is a dwelling place amongst his people, the temple in Jerusalem. What great blessings upon the nation. The workers are mere tenants. They're not owners, they're tenants. The leaders were supposed to be nurturing Israel and providing a great harvest for the master who owned the vineyard, but they had been failing in their attempts. The vintage time drew near. There was coming a time where God expected to receive some fruit, some blessing back. And so he sends some servants to check on how progress is going. They beat one, they kill another, and they stone one. This is speaking likely of Jeremiah, who they beat on many occasions. Threw into a pit and drug him out and beat him some more. Threw him back down, drug him out, beat him again. This is probably speaking of Isaiah, who was, who was killed by being sawn in two. And of Zechariah, who was killed by being stoned to death. They rejected God's prophets. Yet he sent them more abundant. There were many other prophets after those three great. The last of which was John the Baptist. And what did they do to him? They killed him, just like some of the previous ones. Last of all, he sent his son. Jesus was the greatest of the prophets. He did fulfill that role, but he was the greatest. And... Jesus was the last of the prophets to Israel. There is not going to be another. Jesus is the final message. They say, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They recognize that the land belongs to the master, is going to be given to the son, but they want it. And so the, the key is, we'll kill him and we'll take it for ourselves. That's exactly what the Jewish leaders were trying to do in Jesus' lifetime. They were trying to gather disciples after themselves build their own nation separate and apart from God the Father and God the Son. I think of John chapter 12 verse 19 in that triumphant march into Jerusalem. What was the cry of the leaders? The whole world has gone after him. We're losing our nation. And Jesus is pointing out it was never theirs to begin with. Then it points out they took the son outside the city and killed him. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen come Friday. Remember this is Tuesday. You're going to kill me. And you're going to take me outside the city walls of Jerusalem to do it. The sentence is pronounced. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? Notice how the people respond to that. They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. In other words, he's going to do it and he's going to bring a lot of pain in the situation too. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. The people understand what justice was, and they pronounce sentence upon themselves, which proves the judgment that later came down by God was just and it was right and it was fair. Here's some points. From their own mouths, they passed judgment. Number two, a new Israel is going to come about. It's going to be taken from one group and given to another. They understood that that was fair and right. God is going to raise up new children to Abraham from the rock. A new nation. This new nation would be held to the same standard as the first. They must bear fruits. And here's a key point I want to make to us today. Just because we're the nation of God, the church, does not mean that we're going to receive salvation just because we were born into his kingdom. We must bear fruits. Let the warning against Israel be a warning to us today as well. Having heard the sentence, the self-pronounced sentence, the self-indicting sentence, the self-condemning sentence. Jesus said, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? 
It appears he's kind of shocked at their bold, direct judgment upon themselves. He's saying, can you not understand what you've been reading and how this is a pronouncement upon yourselves? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in, your, in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Their ignorance of the scriptures result in their self-condemnation. Israel has rejected Christ and will lead to a new building. A new stone would be planted. Christ, the chief cornerstone. The old building, that is the temple, was going to be done away with. And it was going to be replaced with a new center of worship, the church. God would be the architect of this new building and it would be glorious in God's eyes. This, this new building, this new nation did not come about by chance. It came about by the planned forethought and careful knowledge and preparation of God. It was built by God and not by man. The church is not ours. It was God's just as the first vineyard was God's. And the church is a marvelous creation. It is marvelous in ours. How do we look upon the church that Christ built? Be careful when we speak evil of the church, for it is a glorious thing. Jesus is explicitly stating now what had been earlier implied. God is gathering a new nation. Israel will cease from being his people. And again, he refers to this, the kingdom of God. God is going to again reign with authority, unlike he has been allowed to reign amongst Israel, physical in nature. It would be, if you want to be saved, he's pointing out a couple things here. Don't persecute the church, for you're going to be broken. Get out of the church's way, for it will grind you in powder. God has a salvation. It's coming to his people. It's coming to the world. And you can get, either get in it, or you can have it come upon you. Which will it be? That's a scary sentencing that Jesus declares. Matthew 21, verse 45. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Good on them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because everybody took him for a prophet. This doesn't bring about remorse or repentance in the people. They just become angry. How does God's word affect us? These are pretty direct statements. These are hard statements, bold statements. When God's word is aimed directly at us because it applies to our life, because we're lacking the fruits that we need to be the kingdom of God, how do we respond to it? Are we going to get upset at the messenger or are we going to repent? That's the question. Learn from Israel's failure. The vineyard, the produce, the servants, and the son all belong to God, but the rebellion belonged all to the people. And they pronounced their own sentencing. Now how's the sentencing going to come about? This brings us to the third parable. The execution of Israel. Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 through 10. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Pause here and just make a brief note. It says, again, he spoke in a parable. This is linking it to the previous two. It also says he sent out his servants. That's an identical phrase that's used in the previous parable. It's the linking of these things. Picking up in verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants, another link, saying... Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. 
But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with the guests. The invitation to the wedding feast has gone out. The sun in this wedding feast represents Christ, and the bride is his church. Just as the first two sons rejected, one the, the, the first of the two sons rejected working for the master, and as the servants were rejected not once but twice in the previous parable, so there are two messages that go out and both result in rejection. Though the physical destruction of the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem has been alluded to in the previous parable, now it is explicitly stated. Whenever the second rejection occurs, he sends out his army to destroy them and their city. It's talking about the destruction of Israel that comes, Jerusalem that comes in AD 70. God used the army of Titus to accomplish his will because of the rebellion of the people. He burned up their city as it were since the burning listen carefully this since the burning refers to the destruction of Jerusalem this tells us that the second group of servants that were sent out were preachers of the gospel notice what's happening in the story people are invited before the wedding's prepared they refused the wedding has been prepared. The, the calf has been slain. The feast is already ready. Other servants are now sent. Those are gospel preachers, the, the apostles of the church. And they went out inviting people. But what happened? They were mocked and they were beaten. People didn't take them seriously. And whenever the time was up and the warnings had been rejected, even under the Christian age, God allowed a period of repentance for Israel then the nation was taken from them. Think about Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, referring to the servants. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is warning his apostles and his disciples what they're going to face as they try to convert Israel after the resurrection. That's exactly what has happened here. The reason Israel was rejected was because they were not worthy. They were not obedient. After the call had gone exclusively to the, the Jews, then the servants go out in the, the city streets and they invite anybody that is willing to come. This is paralleling uh, Acts chapter 1 where it says the gospel would first go to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to all the rest of the world. They went throughout everywhere inviting anybody that would come. It also highlights the words of Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark chapter 16, verse 16. Preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. The kingdom is coming, and it's for all nations. When you combine these three parables, what you see is the indictment, the sentencing, and the execution of Israel. But that's not 
everything that's taught in these parables. We have not finished yet. Matthew chapter 22 verse 11 says, But when the king came to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, for there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. In this latter part of the parable, the focus shifts from Israel to the church. And just as Israel was judged according to the fruits that they had borne, the church will be judged according to the fruits that it's borne. A man showed up at the wedding feast. He received the invitation. He came, but he did not come properly prepared. Folks, there are going to be a lot of people like that on the day of judgment. Everybody here has heard the gospel tons and tons and tons of times. Some of us have been raised in the church all of our life. We've heard the invitation, and we received it, and we came. But on the day of judgment, there's going to be some of us that were not prepared. We did not show up in our wedding garment. We said, yeah, we wanted to receive the invitation, but we wanted to do it on our terms. We wanted to come dressed with the type of obedience that we wanted, not in submission to the king. And on that day, weeping and gnashing of teeth will occur for us, just like with Israel. Folks, you can't come and just be whatever you want to be in the kingdom. You can't go out on Saturday night and party and drink and come into church and take of the Lord's Supper and think everything's going to be okay. You cannot be a second-rate citizen in the kingdom. God demands your all as his servant. Do you have on your robe of white? Or have you been working in it and soiled it with the fruits of this world? Where is your life? Take the warning that Christ gives in the parables. For it's still speaking to us today. I want to point out one more thing before we're done this morning. Something that maybe you've missed before. I've missed before. This section of Scripture parallels the next section of Scripture that comes. Following this trilogy of parables comes a trilogy of narratives. The next narrative is the trial of Christ. Jesus has put the people on trial, and so they try to reverse the tables and put Christ on trial. And what do they do? They send out the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. They're chief men with their best arguments loaded for bear, and they're going to try to take Jesus down. And what happens in the end? Jesus triumphs over them. And at the end of chapter 22, the Bible says, neither did anyone question him anymore. That's the first scene in the second trilogy. The second scene begins in chapter 23. And beginning with verse 1, going down through verse 35, what you have is the indictment of Israel repeated. You have the seven woes that are pronounced upon the nation. And what he had said in parable form, he now says in explicit statements. And he calls them on the carpet for all of their sins. The indictment is followed by the sentencing beginning in, in verse uh, 32 and going down through the end of the chapter, verse 36, where Jesus concludes where he is weeping. He says, as a hen gathers his chicks under her wings, so I wanted you to gather you, O Israel, but you refused. And what he's pointing out is the judgment has come upon you because of your own choice and the nation is being ripped from you. And in chapter 24, now, he begins speaking of the execution that he pronounced in that final parable. And Israel is going to be destroyed with the greatest persecution, the greatest destruction the world had ever seen. 
You know what happens in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 24? Going down through chapter 25. The judgment upon the Christians. Learn the lesson from the destruction of Israel. They had warnings. They had signs. You had teachings. Are you prepared for the return of the Messiah? In chapter 25, he gives another trilogy of parables. I'm going to go and study those sometime. It's how the Christians will be judged in the final day. Israel's trilogy is in Matthew 21 and 22. The church's trilogy is in Matthew chapter 25. The final judgment. Incredible section of scripture with a strong message for us today. Are we ready for the kingdom to be given back to God? The kingdom's here right now at the church. Are we ready for judgment day though? If judgment day comes and you're not ready, can't blame God. It's all on you. It's all on me. The decision, the choices that I make. For God has been gracious and merciful in giving His Son and for giving the gospel of grace so that we can be drawn to Him. Will we receive that message? Or will we reject Him? Where's your life this morning? There's some here this morning that aren't. I don't think are ready to meet the Lord. You need to think about that seriously. Where's your life? If you've never obeyed the gospel, you've never entered into the kingdom. There's some here that need to obey the gospel. You need to think seriously about this. Come believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. And He'll add you to the kingdom. But it does not stop there. You submit yourself in everything that He says to do because He is the Lord and King. Whatever He says, we will do. Because of His great love and mercy for us. If you've been a member of the church but you haven't been living as you should, come, we'd love to pray with you and for you so that you can be restored to faithful service in the kingdom and be prepared for the arrival of the King. Come as we stand and sing this song of There's a fountain free for you and me.